1: While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up with with it and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than, than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand." This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by per- and by persevering produce a crop. This is the word of the Lord.
0: The second reading starts in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, which is on page 970 of the Blue Pew Bibles. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Oh, it's great to be with you, and uh, thank you for your prayers for the ministry of Moore College. Please uh, keep that reading from Hebrews open. The Lord has drawn us here tonight to reflect on what is a pretty serious issue: the whole concept of warnings, and it seems kind of weird to give a trigger warning about warnings. Uh, So I thought we'd start with a bit of a quiz instead. See if you can name the source of these famous warnings. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Anyone? Anyone? Close, but not at all. Macbeth, thank you very much, one of the, one of the witches in Macbeth. It's not, it's not really a warning so much as a premonition. There's no actual form to the danger, even though it appears that something bad is about to happen. If you're from the Game of Thrones generation, winter is coming. Here's another one. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Well, yeah, thank you very much, straight out of the gates. This is a warning for those who would establish empires and rule the world. Uh, In Shelley's poem, The Desert Traveller, discovers the remnants of an immense but toppled statue with its head laying in the sand. And the words that I just quoted are an inscription on a partially covered base of the statue. See how fleeting our efforts at domination are is the kind of moral to the story. Now the warning here is a notice that there are a likely set of circumstances ahead of someone who takes a specific course of action. Well, that might be a bit too highbrow. There's usually only two art students in the room. So here's one for the engineers. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. Yoda, that's right. (laughs) These are the sagely words of Yoda to the young Anakin Skywalker not long before he submits to the dark side of the Force and becomes the coolest character in the whole Star Wars pantheon. But notice, though, there's a caution that allowing strong feelings to dominate one's decisions will lead down a path of self-destruction. That's the warning. Now, from a cultural point of view... I think we have a great deal of difficulty with warnings. We have a very uneasy relationship with them. Some we welcome, but others we ignore or even fight against them. Think of the change in the last decades regarding the way we warn people about the effects of smoking. These we now welcome. If you remember or were even alive in the 1970s or 80s, Warnings about the effects of smoking came in the form of a pleasantly intoned but largely innocuous medical authorities warned that smoking is a health hazard. Is there anyone in the room old enough to have remembered hearing that on the radio? Thank you, my wife. Ah, Mr. Charles, thank you. <laughs> See, that's all Philip Morris would allow us to say about smoking. But now... The kind of graphic evidence of those effects that appears on a cigarette packet would probably bring an R18 plus rating if they were in a movie. It's kind of like a zombie apocalypse in the cigarette packet. But that's okay, because it's serious. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, it doesn't seem to matter how much independently verified scientific evidence is produced to show us that our consumer lifestyle and global capitalism is slowly and surely killing the planet. Doesn't matter how much evidence there is for that. Those warnings are met with either casual disregard or open defiance and derision. Culturally, we have a very unhappy relationship with warnings. Now, psychologists tend to group our responses to negative confrontations under three headings. Fight, fright or flight. A fright response is where we simply seize up or go limp, become immobile and try and hide from the perceived threat. A flight response is where we do whatever we can to avoid or distance ourselves from the situation. We run away. And a fight response is where we actively and aggressively contend against the opponent or threat or otherwise seek to undermine or diffuse its significance. Now, I want to come back to these three responses, but uh, in the meantime, I think we should pray because I think spiritual warnings... Uh, some of the warnings about which our culture is the least happy. So please join with me as I pray that God's Spirit will empower us to have a godly response to warnings that we see in Hebrews 5. Let's pray, please. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the power of your Spirit that works in us. Lord, have mercy on us tonight and open our ears to hear your warning and so live and live for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, what is the warning in today's passage? Here we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Please turn or scroll or use your mittens to move pages or whatever it takes. Have that in front of you, please. I, I want to go through this fairly carefully. But before we do that, I suggest to you that the structure of the letter of Hebrews as a whole Think of it like a spiral staircase going up the inside of a building. And each floor is a different level. You walk up the stairs to get to a floor and as you get to the top, you get the best view. In the letter to Hebrews, the stair enables us to ascend to various levels and learn something more about how great the Lord Jesus is. Now, we begin on the ground floor with verses like this from chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the ground floor. Now, the individual steps that lead us up this staircase are the various pieces of Jesus' resume from the Old Testament that enable us to gradually build a more profound picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. And we get to another floor as we follow those steps up. It's summarised like this in uh, verse 1 of Hebrews. Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. So the steps will take us up the various levels to get a better view of the world and to learn something more that's fantastic about the Lord Jesus. And the writer is there encouraging us, go up, go up, get a better view, see more. The Lord wants us to keep going higher and higher to get the best view, to know the Lord Jesus more deeply and worship him more honestly So he frequently exhorts us to keep going, go up, go up. But he says it like this, Therefore, let us hold fast to the confession. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. That's Hebrews 4.14. So we're making our way up the stairs, which are the Old Testament resume of the Lord Jesus, reaching a different floor and getting a better view of our lives and the wonder of the Lord Jesus. But occasionally, the writer pauses to warn his readers, well, to resist the temptation to slide back down the banister. Seems like a lot of fun, maybe. But it's actually very dangerous. Now we might seek to... Go back down simply because we're tired of the climb. We've become too content for where we are and so we settle for less. Now there are two things you need to know about Hebrews. The first is Jesus is everything you need from God. And the second one, don't settle for less. When you go to work tomorrow and somebody asks you, what did you do on Sunday? Say to them, I learnt that Jesus is all you need from God. And we must not settle for less. Now, please come back for the next few weeks while we do the sermons, but, you know, just keep that with you. One of those times for warnings, though, is in our passage today in Hebrews chapter 5. The writer says to us in verse 11, we have more to say about Jesus. As we make our way up the stair, we learn in verse 5, the writer has more to say about the high priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. He mentioned it a couple of times at the beginning of chapter 5, but there's much more to say. In fact, the next four chapters in the book six, seven, eight, nine, and ten is that four? That's five, isn't it? They'll all be focused on the significance of Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. There's much more to say, but there's a problem. The hearers have become lazy. Now you can't uh, see it there in uh, your uh, translation. In chapter 5, verse 11, I think the NIV says, uh, have stopped paying attention or stopped trying so hard. What have you got before you there? No longer trying to understand. That's a kind gloss. Literally what the uh, writer is saying is, I'd like to tell you more about Jesus, but you've become lazy. You can't be bothered. Some of them, it seems, don't want to keep moving up the stair. They've become either too content to remain where they are, or they're tempted to slip back a step or two, or maybe even a whole level. They are still milk drinkers, we're told, in chapter 5, verse 12, when they ought to be teachers. I used to play that uh, video game Skyrim, you know, lots of He-Man-Nords running through the mountains, hacking down dragons, and they tease each other, you are a milk drinker. Don't be a milk drinker. Here in Hebrews, though, it's not a joke. What he's saying to them is, you're acting like children when it's time to grow up. It's not a charge to be more intellectual or somehow culturally refined, as if they have to stop listening to AM talkback radio and now switch to SBS. In the Gospel accounts, Jesus himself commends a childlike trust in the promises of God, but the Hebrews have settled for a childish or more superficial faith. And now it's time to grow up. It's time to adult as a Christian. Now, it's certainly possible for them to become mature if only they would submit themselves to the training required to distinguish between good and evil, as we see mentioned in chapter 5, verse 14. They could be mature, but they need more. It's more than the basic foundations of their Christian confession. He mentions that in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. We need more than a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teachings about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment. These are the fundamental elements of the Christian story, and we can find them either in the book of Acts or throughout the rest of the New Testament. That righteousness comes through faith as opposed to works of the law, that purification rites are no longer valid or necessary that elders need to be appointed in churches by apostolic endorsement, that the promise of resurrection is for all those who die trusting in Jesus and the reality that one day God will gather all creation together and hold it accountable before the Lord Jesus. Those are the basics of our faith, it's true, says the writer. But we need a deeper understanding. He doesn't expect them to leave those things behind as if they've started off now, but there's actually something more important to know. No, remember the staircase. They've got to keep moving to get a bigger, deeper, true reflection of the glory of the Lord Jesus so they can see life from the proper perspective. It's time for the Hebrews to refine their understanding of who Jesus is and what he did and does. In fact, it's time for them to mature in their faith in his promises and increase in wisdom as they live in the world. Now, in simple terms, it must be that the Hebrews need to give more attention to trusting in the superiority of Jesus' cross in comparison to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That's certainly what the writer goes on to explore in the next five chapters. Those are the next levels of the staircase that he need, wants them to progress. In order to be able to judge their lives rightly, to determine what is good and what is evil in their daily activities, the Hebrews need a deeper understanding of the priestly mediation of the Lord Jesus for them before God. But they're tempted to settle for less, for a superficial allegiance or a general association with Jesus the Christ, rather than a disciplined personal engagement. Maybe they don't feel it so much anymore. Maybe their early enthusiasm, oh, it's kind of wearing a bit thin now that life's getting a bit heavier, they have more responsibility. But instead of giving them a there-there pat on the head, It's at this point that the warning starts to become genuinely severe. The training of the Hebrews will go on, if God permits, see there in verse 3 of chapter 6? It seems that like a lot of juvenile behaviour from adults, and no one knows that better than a middle-aged man, the Hebrews' preference for superficiality could actually result in disaster. Look what he says in verse 5 and 6. It's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away. To slide back down the staircase of faith, as it were, is an irredeemable situation. But what could possibly overcome the glory of the Lord Jesus? that we've read so much about in the first three chapters of this letter, first four chapters. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the steps on the Hebrew Christian stair are the various significant aspects of Old Testament faith. Revelation comes from God through angels in chapter 1 and 2. Moses was the greatest prophet that Israel ever had in chapter 3. And the promised land to which Joshua led them in chapter 4 was the fulfilment of all God's promises about their resting place. As the writer examines each of these steps, he does so again according to the logic of the first verses of the book. Let me remind you again, listen carefully. Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he's spoken to us By his son. In these last days, God has revealed the fulfillment of all those things, all those pillars of Jewish faith. The fulfillment and perfection of all these things is found in Jesus the Christ and him alone. Jesus is a better revelation than angels, he's a better prophet than Moses, and he brings a better rest than the promised land of Canaan ever could. But most of all, the priestly work of Jesus that brings forgiveness of sin totally eclipses the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice in the perfect temple under the terms of a perfect covenant and in fact he himself is the perfect mediator of reconciliation. You don't need any more from God than he gives you in Jesus. And as a result, there's now no other way that God will accept and save us than through the death of his Son for us. The immaturity of the Hebrews may well be they have a yes-but faith. Yeah, I believe that that's true about Jesus, but... I believe Jesus did those things, but, you know, in polite company we say, it's highly problematic. Now, as far as we can tell from looking at this letter and in the historical context that surrounds it, it seems highly likely that some amongst the Hebrews have received it, who received this letter were tempted to slide back down the stairs towards a more traditional Jewish faith. Now, whether it's because of state-sanctioned persecution or just the everyday alienation of not having a normal religion like their Gentile neighbours, that is, they don't go to temples anymore, they don't offer sacrifices, they don't absorb feasts and special washings and worship angels and all that sort of stuff. They're weirdos in the local neighbourhood. Because of those kind of things, the Hebrews attempted, well, to take the easy option To have trust in God light without his son. To obey God, but without the rule of Jesus the Christ. To seek reconciliation from God as Saviour, but not through the ministry of Jesus, the great high priest. And that, says the writer, is straight up dangerous. In fact, It is downright blasphemous. Or, as Jesus himself said in the gospel accounts, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You see, to say to God, Look, I really want to believe in you, I just can't get on board with Jesus. What a slap! How much more could God do for you than to send his son into the world to live our life, to reach down under us into the lowest part of our existence to save us and for us to respond, yeah, no. I do want to believe in God. I want to do the right thing. But I just can't get on board with Jesus. or as the writer to the Hebrews put it, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt, in chapter 6, verse 6. Now, at a superficial level, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was an attempt by the powers of the day to humiliate a rebel. But not just to silence someone who objected to a status quo, but to thoroughly negate all the values for which he stood, and to nullify any significance of all the deeds that he performed and God says no I'm not having it and so he raises him to life again but as he does that God says no to worldly power and yes to Jesus the king God says no to worldly religion and yes to worshipping Jesus. God says no to self-determination and yes to identity in his son. Basically God says, I choose him. If you turn your back on Jesus now, says the writer, then you are practically siding with the authorities that sought to destroy the ministry of Jesus all over again. So beware that your spiritual immaturity does not lead you to hold the Lord Jesus and his ministry in contempt. Beware of having a lower view of Jesus than God himself does. That is the most dangerous thing a human being can do. Now it's important to remember that this is a warning, it's not a threat. This passage is meant to be a warning and so we read, look at verse 9 there, Even though we're speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of the things that are better and that pertain to salvation. A warning is not announcing intention to do harm to someone, but rather to see that they avoid harm. A warning is not intention to do harm to someone, but rather seeing that they avoid harm. In fact, he goes on. Look there in verse 10. For it's, God is not unjust. He will not forsake your work and the love you demonstrated in his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. Keep maturing. Keep maturing. Keep growing, keep going, always and only entrusting your life to the promise of the Lord Jesus, who stands not only before you and God, but for you, with God. And so he ends where he began. Verse 12. So you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Don't be lazy. Don't drift along on the surface of spiritual childishness, but instead be diligent in applying the grace of the Lord Jesus to your lives. So how will we respond to the warning? Well, I said there were three things, didn't I? Fight, fright, and flight. Now as I mentioned <clears throat> This passage is a warning, and we ought to, in our cultural context, (coughs) distinguish quite carefully between warnings and threats. Culturally, whether actively or passively, we train ourselves or condition ourselves or are conditioned to be highly suspicious of power imbalances in personal interactions, but especially when those interactions involve institutions, when we have to deal with institutions. You know what I'm saying. Institution, bad. Individual, yay. Institution, oppression. Individual, freedom. Now, there's no denying that political leaders, financial and industrial leaders, even church leaders, have shown themselves to be unreliable or just wanting to serve and protect their own interests and those of their peers. Consequently, we've grown highly suspicious of their intentions and the intentions of others who want to make a claim on our behaviour or threaten our freedoms, our right to self actualization or self-determination. And that stings most at this stage of life. You may not feel like it, but we are amongst the most powerful people in the country. Professional, educated, upwardly mobile. You'll never be more powerful than you are now. And so a warning, well, that always feels like a threat, doesn't it? But the Lord does not intend to harm us but rather empower us to avoid harm. Encouraging or even exhorting an adult to act their age may well curb their freedoms in an absolute sense, if you think that freedom is the right to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and however you determine what is right and necessary. But the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, is warning us not to confuse self-determination with self-destruction. In short, if you view the call to submit your life to the Lord Jesus as a threat, if you cannot imagine sacrificing your plans and aspirations for the sake of obeying him or submitting your own attempt at self-worth in exchange for the value that God wants to give you in Jesus, then you've already made the fight response against the Bible's warnings. Many years ago I had a friend, well, I can still consider him a friend. He chose to believe basically that the truth about Jesus just didn't matter. He was part of our church. He and his wife came to our Bible study group. He was in my home. He's a scientific guy, very smart. But there were areas of Christianity that were problematic to coin the phrase. So I laboured with him, we read the Bible together, I answered his questions, I listened to his scientific friends, I spoke to him as much as I could in season and out of season. But in the end, he just didn't care. Oh sure Dave, I believe what you're saying is true. I believe that Jesus lived. He did those things he did. He said those things he said. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. But I just don't care. And so at one point, he wrote me a letter. Thanks for all your effort. I appreciate your care. But I think it's time for us to part ways. I haven't seen him now for 15 years. He chose to believe that the truth didn't matter. You see, Jesus, though he was God's son, learned obedience through what he suffered. But for my friend, well, the cost of obedience was just too high. It's getting in the way of his desires. That's the fight response. Well, what about the fright response? Talk of falling away, as we read in chapter 6, verse 6, drives some Christians inwards. They become spiritually paralyzed with fear of their inadequacies or their weaknesses or their sins. Their internal monologue becomes all about how horrible and terrible they are. Their self talk is all about their fears of not being forgivable. So whether by habitual aversion or obsessive rumination with their experience of faith, Christians like this respond to the warnings of the Bible with fright. But they risk cutting themselves off from the very source of life that God offers them in the priestly ministry of Jesus. Now often when we see people like this, we feel like, well, doesn't God feel sorry for them? But how lame is that? Jesus didn't come into the world because God feels sorry for us. What kind of a saviour would he be? Recently I had the misfortune of catching Bondi Rescue on the television. (laughs) You know the situation, Bondi Beach, full of tourists, most of them are drowning. There's the beautiful guys and girls running out to the surf to save them. Well, imagine that you're a Christian in the fright response. You're stuck in a rip out in the surf on Bondi Beach. Out comes he guy, she gal, whoever, over the waves, portable inflatable rubber device, swims up next to you, you're trapped, you can't move, you can't go forward and can't go back. Lifesaver puts arm around bobbing head Bob's down with you, takes a mouthful of water. This is really terrible, isn't it? I really feel your pain. Swims back, out of the beach, up to the shore. You're still drowning in the water, but at least you know that someone shared your pain. They felt sorry enough for you to come down into the water and let you know you must be doing it tough. What a totally lame description of what God does for us in the gospel. Jesus doesn't come into the world just because, or somehow because he feels sorry for us. He comes into the world to save us, because that's what we desperately need. If you're stuck in the fright response to God's warnings, you want to say, I can't do anything. But that's exactly what you must say. Lord, I can't do anything. Save me. God sent Jesus into the world to stand for us, to save us. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. But he didn't pray like that just because he felt sorry for us. He prayed like that for all those times when we can't pray. When we can't trust. That's what it is to be a priest for the people, of the people, before God. Fight, fright, and so flight. Ultimately, of course, people warn us about danger because they want us to avoid it, to flee to safety, into the arms of love. And as painful to our pride as it may be to realise that we've been acting childishly, the solution to our dilemma is to open our hearts in prayer so that God can fill our hearts with his promises the flight response in Hebrews is all those encouragements. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is already here waiting for you. And when you feel that fright response, know that Jesus is already there praying for you. God sends Jesus into the world to stand in that space between my ideal spiritual self, you know the one I'm talking about, has a great church face, has a great collection of proof texts for their social media, super spiritual me, and then everyday me, the one I loathe, I'm afraid to show. Jesus stands in that space between us. He puts to death the idolatrous me, the one I put out there for you all to worship and like and follow. He puts that one to death, And offers his own righteousness to God instead. And he covers my everyday me with his righteousness before God. Flee to him. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Flee to him, says the writer of the Hebrews. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray for mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would overlook our childishness because of Jesus. We pray that you would take away our sinfulness because of Jesus. We pray that you would forgive our fighting against you for Jesus' sake. And we pray all this so that Jesus will receive some small part of the glory you want to give him.